once again. Father, we need we need your light. For we live in a world that is profoundly dark. Lord, it's full of lies, deceptions, and Lord, therefore we need your truth. We need to have our minds renewed. And so, Lord, we're endeavoring now to look at your word and we pray that you would give us grace uh, to understand it and understand how we should live in light of it. And I pray specifically that you would encourage the downcast that you would strengthen the weak, that you would uh, build up the immature and solidify them in the faith. Lord, if there's anybody here that has not yet come to understand the amazing grace that, it, that is offered to them in Christ and have submitted themselves unto you, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to open their eyes so that they would be brought from darkness into light and and receive the the, the forgiveness, the joy, the peace that is available to them in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Over the past few weeks in our study of the book of Acts, we have been looking at Paul's ministry in Macedonia. And you might recall that Paul began his missionary journey uh, being sent out from the church of Antioch. Particularly, he was wanting to encourage the churches that he had previously planted uh, on his first missionary trip, uh, the churches that were in South Galatia. And after doing so, uh, he was moved to want to spread his ministry amongst the, um, uh, amongst the churches in Asia, or at least to begin plant churches in Asia. And yet, the Lord shut the door there. And he was, he was a bit perplexed, but then the Lord opened up uh, an opportunity for him and directed him to go plant churches in Macedonia. And he began some of the, the healthiest churches that we know of in the New Testament, those of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And we come now to Paul's mission to the Bereans. And we noted last week how Paul continued this regular pattern um, that began in, in really every city he came to where he went to plant a church. He would begin by preaching within a synagogue, uh, if possible, and then in preaching, he would have some progress. People would believe. They would submit themselves to Christ. They would embrace the gospel. But then this would be really followed in pretty short time by persecution. And that pattern of preaching, progress, and persecution also is uh, evidenced here in Berea. And so that really constitutes our outline, as you see before you. Let's look, first of all, at his preaching. A very encouraging passage here in verses 10 and 11. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. Again, we, we see Paul going about his normal pattern. If possible, he would go into a synagogue and begin preaching. And this is, what, of course, what he does. He's explaining what the Scripture taught regarding the Messiah. But Luke uh, contrasts the reception of 
the Berean Jews with those of the Thessalonian Jews. Unlike the Thessalonian Jews, they were not plagued with the same jealousy. Rather, it says the Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so in this line, really, this one line of scripture, actually Luke gives us three characteristics of a good Bible student. You could also think of these as God's instructions as to how we should listen to sermons. What should characterize good sermon listening? And I would characterize these as be rational, be teachable, and be diligent. Let's look for, at that first one, be rational. I get this from verse 11 where it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The word, the word noble means to be more rational, more reasonable, more thoughtful. It is that they received Paul's explanation without a preconceived bias. Or they didn't allow their emotions to cloud their reception of what Paul was saying. In other words, they gave Paul a fair hearing. The word noble actually originally uh, referred to a person of the nobility. In fact, uh, the word um, is eugenics, from which we get the word eugenics, literally well-born. Paul uses the word uh, in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's the same word that's used here. In fact, Jesus used the word in one of his parables speaking of a a nobleman who went out to uh, go on a journey. I believe it's in Luke 17. It, It speaks of a person of the nobility. But the point here that Luke is using is that these Berean Jews were more noble-minded. They thought like people of the nobility versus slaves. They thought, like, they thought like those who had been trained to think well, to think rationally, to make decisions for themselves, not just to be told what to do. In fact, this is where the term liberal arts education comes from. Uh, the free man, the noble, had to make their own decisions. Whereas slaves just needed to know how to do a, perform a task, do a task, do what they were told. But a free man needed to be trained how to think, to make judgments. So, so what does it mean to be noble-minded, therefore, in light of the Scriptures? Well, it means the Bereans thought about what Paul was saying. They, they weighed his arguments. They considered what he was teaching, his ideas, based upon their own merit not based upon whether they liked it or not. Not based upon, does this line up with what I already think? They didn't react impulsively according to preconceived notions. They weren't just simply looking for validation of what they already believed. They wanted the Word of God to be explained. They wanted to see, is that what the Bible teaches? Not, do I agree with that? A church um, that, that they weren't just wanting a church that affirms what they believed. They wanted to be taught what the Word of God says. They weren't just being led by or wanting to have their, their feelings to be promoted. They weren't just wanting to be, again, affirmed. What they cared about was 
Is what's being taught true? Right? And again, this was Eve's problem from the very beginning. Like, she followed her heart. Right? She listened to Satan. And it says in Genesis 3, 6, she saw the fruit. It was desirable. It was desirable to make one wise. It was pleasing to the eyes. And so she took and ate it. Again, she was weighing, okay, this is what I've heard from God say. And what Adam says, and, and, and this is what Satan's saying, what am I going to do? And she, instead of listening to God's word, she listens to the snake. And sometimes that's often how people approach the word of God. They're not just so much looking and trying to decide what's, re- what's true, what does God actually say. They're wanting instead to hear what they want the word of God to say. And this is, in fact, why... God gave Christ pastors to the church so that Christians would be trained to think for themselves so they'd be able to see between lies and truth. They would be able to interpret God's word. In fact, see this for yourself in Ephesians 4. This is the responsibility of elders. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we would no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, into deceitful seams. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So the very purpose of pastors, of elders, of shepherds, is to equip the saints so that they're not deceived. Which means they have to point them back to the word of God so that people would learn truth isn't found internally. Truth is found in the scriptures. Rightly understood. And so the importance of being rational, thoughtful, studious in our approach to Scripture is is also seen in Paul's letter to Timothy. Where where he warns Timothy, a young pastor, that how easily people can be deceived and led astray. Which is why he needed to preach the word. People can believe ludicrous things, he says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He says... But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, But denying its power, avoid such people. And then notice this, verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. 
And so this is why he tells Timothy to preach the word, to make its meaning clear. Just look at the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but notice this, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is how the nonsense that, gets, that we see in so many churches gets spread. Because people stop looking at the Bible. And they start going to churches that just affirm what they already want to believe. They're not looking for truth, they're looking for affirmation. And that's why, and that can happen in our church as well. That's why we need to always be looking at the Word of God. Is that what the Word of God is saying? Is this the truth? We're guarded from believing false teachings by being taught through clear, rational, logical explanation of the Word. And this is why the Bereans had such fruitfulness, is because they didn't just take Paul at his word. But they went home and they, they examined it. And this brings us to the second characteristic of a good Bible student that Luke gives. Is that these Bereans were teachable. And notice it says, they received the word with great eagerness. They received the word. They wanted to be taught the word. Right? They wanted to be fed Christians, just like the Apostle Peter says, should be like newborn infants longing for the pure milk of of the word, that by it they may grow up into salvation. It's First Peter 2.2. 2. Right? Any, any parent has experienced the challenge of having a child who is sitting at the dinner table and doesn't want to eat their food. They don't want to eat their mango peach puree. But they need to, they need to feed them or else they'll die. And so they, they try all sorts of things. Maybe they try it for themselves to show them it's not poisonous. And they, Look, it's yummy. Or, or maybe they'll uh, pretend that the, 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 the spoon is a helicopter and it's looking for a place to land. That, that always worked with Daniel. Still does. He's getting better, though. Right? You, you try all these things to feed the child, but they still refuse. Well, why? Because they don't want it. They want what they want. They don't want you to tell them what they should eat. They want to choose for themselves what they want to eat. And sometimes people approach the Bible with the, with the same attitude. The fact that the, to find a truly teachable person, even Christians, it's, it's a rare quality. I mean, most, most people have to, to fail before they're willing to really ask for advice. They have to be desperate. They have to be flattened, so to speak, and just looking for some source of hope because everything else they've tried isn't working. I mean, just think. I mean, when was the last time you went to another Christian and asked for their advice? Just on your own, just because you, you want to grow. You want to make a good decision. I mean, most people were just confident. We, it's, some, it's, it's part of just being an American, I think. 
We're just caught. We got to just make our own decision. If we we're, we're it, it's almost maybe a sense of we're acting fools if we need to ask for help, if we need to ask for advice, if we need to ask for counsels. But that sort of mentality is not in line with Scripture. A wise person wants to make a wise decision. Therefore, they seek counsel. They're teachable. They're not just looking to be affirmed. They're looking to be taught. Sometimes also people just approach the Bible with an attitude of they're going to read, but just out of raw discipline. They're not there because they, they're not expecting the Bible to really teach them something new. And so at their Bible reading time, if it's morning by morning, is, it's, it's just rote discipline. Right? They're not really expecting something new because they just assume I've already been taught everything I need to know. Or they come to church because, again, they just like the music, but they're, they're frankly bored by the sermon or even the scripture reading. They're not, they're not opening the Bible anticipating. What is it that God's going to teach me today? How is he going to help me through his word? What light is he going to share on my life? Instead, they're just like wanting, expecting to be impressed. Give me a good illustration. Tell me something funny so that I'm entertained. They just assume they, need, they know everything they need to know already. Rather than having a, a, a strong sense of spiritual need, a sense of desperation, an, expect, an expectation that God is going to speak to them through His Word. Because it's God's Word. They, they actually have more expectation that they're going, to be, they're going to be more moved by a song than by truth. And this is why David exhorts us in Psalm 34... Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are the man who takes refuge in him. Taste him. Eagerly receive it. Taste it. And so not only should we receive the word with eagerness in our hearts like the Bereans, but we should also be committed to examining it, to studying it, to make sure we understand it rightly. And if we're hearing teaching that it's being taught rightly, and that brings us to the third characteristic, be diligent. third characteristic of a good Bible student is that they're diligent. The Bereans, it says, examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Right When they, when they heard what Paul taught, they understood they had a responsibility to make sure it was accurate. And that the word actually examined has judicial connotations. This is what happens when a person's at a trial. They're being examined. Prosecutors are, are presenting evidence. They're cross-examining witnesses. In fact, the word is used in Acts 4.9 to describe the apostles' examination by the Sanhedrin. For being examined, is the word today, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. They said they were they were there on trial before the Sanhedrin. Were they did they do something right or wrong? The Bereans, likewise, were, exa- were examining what Paul said with the word. The same word uh, Herod is used of Herod's examination of the jail guards that lost Peter in Acts 12. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. 
He evaluated them and then came to a conclusion and executed them. So the point here is the Bereans performed a thorough cross-examination of what Paul was teaching. They examined the witnesses, the law, the prophets, the writings. They examined the evidence. Paul says that the Messiah had to die. And he points to Isaiah 53. Yep, that's what it says. Okay. And rise again. Yeah, that's clear too. The point is they, they took effort. They didn't just they didn't just believe Paul and assume, well, he's a rabbi. He went to he sat under Gamaliel. He's a smarter guy than I am. I'm just going to believe him. Well, they they listened to his teaching. They received the word with eagerness, but then they daily examined to see if it was so. They did both. They were teachable, but they were also responsible. And they were diligent to put in effort to make sure that what was being taught was accurate. They were on the alert like a lawyer in court, weighing everything that's said, wanting to find out, how can I affirm or how can I show that there's an error that's being Supported by, by this person under examination. I mean, I remember shortly after we were married, going to the grocery store and uh, being very, very satisfied because I, everything that I had purchased on the grocery list, uh, I'd gotten on sale. I went and I looked for one of the big red signs that said sale. And so I was super happy, came home and my wife asked to see the receipt. And she, she looked at me and she said, you paid how much? And I said, but they were all on sale. I was looking for affirmation. And then she had to just patiently explain to me, just because it says it's on sale doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a good deal. I need to hear that. Um, and the Bereans, again, they like that. They, they, when we hear good Bible teaching, we can't just assume we're getting a good deal. Just because the person sounds good. They sound smart. They went to a good school. They have a degree. They're wearing a suit, whatever. We have to examine for ourselves, is it really a good deal? They weren't, the Bereans weren't just accepting what was coming at them like blind mice. They diligently searched the Scriptures. Notice it says daily. They understood the need to know the truth, to be reminded of the truth. And they were, they were at the synagogues because they wanted to learn. They wanted to understand what Paul was saying. And they understood that, that he wasn't simply just explaining a philosophy. He wasn't just giving good life coaching. He was explaining God's word. The very words of the creator of the universe. What could be more precious than that? And so they wanted to make sure they were understanding it rightly. And, and the result of this eager embrace and, and this examination of the Word of God was that the gospel made progress in people's hearts. When people are, are willing to examine the Word, when they're teachable, they're, they're eager to receive it, the Word will produce fruit. It will. When their attitude is, God, teach me, tell me what to do, versus, God, affirm what I believe. When their attitude is, Humble teachability. Again, as, Jesus, as, as Isaiah 
In the book of Isaiah, Yahweh says, On this one I will look on he who is humble and contrite of heart who trembles at my word. When that's their attitude, God will produce fruit. And he does here. Amongst the Bereans, it says in verse 12, Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. You see the, the understatement there, not a few. Again, he's, he's in a synagogue. He's preaching to Jews primarily, but a large number of, of Greek women of high standing. Can you see that pattern in Philippi, in Thessalonica? For whatever reason, God was transforming the hearts of a large number of Greek women who are well-to-do, who are financially well-off, of the nobility. But also it says here, men as well. Many of them believe, both Jews and Greeks. And they believed again because they were willing to receive the word of God. They wanted to know what God said was true. And they weren't just, they weren't just willing to accept Paul at his word. But they, they were humble and teachable and diligent to make sure that what he said was actually what God's word said. Again, these Berean Jews, they were like those Thessalonian Gentiles who, he says, received the word of God and accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. First Thessalonians 2.13. And they became believers again because they believed what God's word said. They believed God's word. That's what it means to be a believer. We believe the gospel because it's what the word of God says. So, so what does, again, such, such faith look like? Again, the word faith and belief, it's the same word in the Greek, pistos. Just different forms of it. What does such faith look like in our life when we have it? Well, first of all, saving faith, a person who's a true believer, who really believes, takes God at his word. The saving faith believes the gospel and everything else revealed in Scripture. I love, one of my favorite passages I think that illuminates what saving faith looks like is Romans 4 in the uh, person of Abraham, often called the father of faith. If you turn in your Bibles to Romans 4, look at verse 18, how he explains what saving faith looks like. I mean, I remember teaching in a Christian school for years, and I was just shocked by how often I'd ask these Christians, these Christian kids at this school, coming from Christian families, why, what does it mean to be a believer? And most, almost, almost all of them said, well, I believe that God exists. Well, Satan believes that God exists. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to, to truly believe? It, it can't be that to just believe that God exists or believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What, what does it look like? What is the evidence that you truly have received saving faith? That you've been born again? Well, the example, I think, is here in Romans 4. It's, it's developed, verse 18. Notice this. In hope, speaking of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he's been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith, Look at the situation. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, right? God had promised he was going to have a son. And he's like, 
I'm over 100 years old. My wife has never been pregnant. It's impossible. Would have been what a normal person would have thought. They would not have had faith. But Abraham believed it, not because it made scientific sense, but because that's what God's word said. God said it, therefore he believed it. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. How did he glorify God? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what saving faith looks like. When you believe God's word more than anything else, more than how you feel, more than what you learned growing up, when you believe God's word more than anything, and you show that you believe by how you live, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you believe me, you'll obey. It's the main argument of the book of James. Faith without works is dead. Saving faith, again, it's looking away from ourselves, our own understanding, our emotions, our own efforts, and it's trusting completely in what God says. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the shepherd of the sheep and the sheep when they hear his voice follow him because they know his voice if and if you believe that god is who he says he is and jesus is god jesus is who he says he is then there's no way that you would ignore his instruction if you believe in god you would want to obey him you'd want to trust him He's not going to lie. He can't lie. It's impossible for him to lie. Why would you trust some man over God? Why would you trust yourself? I mean, just look at your life. We make mistakes all the time. And sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, at the end of their, they say they have no regrets. And I think usually what they mean is, you know what, my bad choice of, led me to be where I'm at. I look at my life and I think, it's like all regrets. I mean, seriously. I mean, the only good choices I've made have been almost, I, I could say, by the immense grace of God. I mean, it's not all regret. It's an overstatement. But I am so ashamed of so much of what I've done. And it's only because of God's word that he's steered me to start making good choices. we believe who God says he is, there's no way we can extort it and ignore its instructions. So saving faith, again, it takes God and his word. It trusts God more than, than ourselves. Saving faith, secondly, defines the way we live. Right? We, we live by faith in Christ. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I live by faith. Romans 3, same thing. The righteous will live by faith. Not by sight. Not by feeling. But by faith. Faith in what? In God's word. In what Jesus says. Exactly, Julio. Trusting him. And faith in God's promise ultimately directs how we live and what we'll do. And so as we've seen throughout Paul's ministry in Acts so far, Paul would preach. He'd open up the word. And and people who were receiving it, 
they, it would make progress in their hearts and they would grow and some people would be saved, both Jews and Greeks. But also the pattern continues. And persecution quickly follows. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now notice that the persecution this time doesn't come within the city of Berea at first. She comes from the Thessalonian Jews. Again, because the Berean Jews, they were more noble. They they were able to look at objectively at what Paul taught and weigh it with the word of God. The persecution comes from the Jews at Thessalonica. And what stirs them up is they learned, notice, that the word of God was being preached. That's what gets them angry. They weren't necessarily angry at Paul. It doesn't say they heard that Paul was there. It says, When they heard the word of God was preached, was being proclaimed by Paul, they were primarily opposed to the word. Why would they be so angry at preaching? I mean, that they would be willing to to walk 50 miles. And and to, to people they probably didn't even know, to stir up crowds, most of whom would have been Greeks. Think about the amount of zeal that they must have had. What, what was it about the preaching of the word of God that made them so furious? I mean, what would it take you guys to want to go walk 50 miles to create a riot? Well, the answer to that question is they hate the light. Turn your Bibles to John 3. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Right? The reason that persecution comes from unbelievers. The reason unbelievers persecute Christians is because their works are evil. They're by nature enemies of God. Romans 8 verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's it's an enemy with God. It's at war with God. For it does not submit to God's law. It doesn't accept God as its Lord. It's God. In fact, Paul says, indeed it cannot. Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They don't want to. It's not in their nature. They want what they want. They want to be Lord. They want to tell God what to do. They're not asking. They don't want God to tell them what to do. I mean, the word bristles against their pride. It provokes anger. It provokes hostility. Because the Bible is God's word, it projects authority. And men by nature don't like authority. Unless they're the ones in authority. They don't want to be told what to do. None of us want to be told what to do. By nature. 
And the word of God demands submission because it's God's word. And so when the word of God is preached, there's a very real spiritual battle that's going on. Even with believers. Because we still struggle with the flesh and the mind is connected to our flesh. There's a battle between, like two generals on a battlefield. And it's, it's, gonna be, it's, it's win or lose to the death. There can be no amnesty. And God will not submit himself to us. He will not be our slave. And he demands that as our creator, we will be his slave. And so you have two opposing forces One must submit. And God won't. And that's what's happening every time the word's preached. Every single one of us has to wrestle with, do I want to submit to this God? Or do I want to find some way to excuse my lack of submission? Will every thought be brought into subjection to God? 2 Corinthians 10. 4 through 6, Paul says that's what he's trying to do when he's preaching. Bring every thought into submission to God. Every thought. So will this thought be brought into submission or will it continue to resist his authority? Again, one has to give. God, again, will not submit to our lordship. And so either we will continue to rebel or we'll submit. And God demands absolute submission. And so if we're a believer and we've confessed that we we want to submit to him, he will make sure that we do. And in love, he will discipline us. But I bring all this up to give us explanation of why is it that unbelievers hate the word of God so much? What is it about preaching that they're so resistant to that they'd want to hurt people? I mean, every town Paul goes in... There's resistance, violent resistance. Well, again, the reason is because when unbelievers hear the word of God demanding submission, they fight it with every vestige of their being. I mean, again, how would you respond if somebody came to you and said, you must submit to me? That's what the word of God says, because it's God's word. Just listen to the words at the end of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. He's talking to kings and rulers. Verse 11. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Take refuge in him, you'll be blessed, but you must submit. I don't care who you are. That's what the Word of God says. It demands submission. In fact, even just listen to the words in the Great Commission. Listen to the words of authority and dominion pronounced by Christ. Romans, sorry, sorry, Matthew 8, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, he's speaking to his disciples, disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have all authority over everyone. Go, therefore, and make disciples 
of all nations, learners, those who have chosen to submit to me. And they will do that by allowing themselves, choosing to be baptized, showing they've died to themselves and have now risen with life, wanting to follow me. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then, listen, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teach them to obey everything that I've said. That's what the disciples were told to do by Jesus. Jesus demands absolute submission to his word. That's why unbelievers hate it. They don't want submission. They want to rule. So why do Christians submit to God's word? Why do we come in and eagerly receive it and love it and treasure it? Well, it's because it's true. And because it's the word of the most wonderful master we could ever submit to. And we love to be his slaves. See, what unbelievers don't realize is that Christ is a far greater master than ourselves, than sin, than pride, than arrogance. He's far more gentle with us than actually we are even with ourselves. Far more kind. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Right, often when we do something bad, we want to make up for it by by. by some, some people, they, they cut themselves or they, 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 they beat themselves or they, 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 they we got to make ourselves, we got to make up for our failures. You know what Christ does? He's crucified for us so that we don't ever have to do anything to make up for it because we can't. That's the master we serve, one who dies to pay our penalty. Yes. He calls us to submit because that's exactly what's best for us. Because he knows better, he knows what we need better than we ourselves know. Because we're corrupted by sin. He's the the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and he sets them free from their slavery to sin. Unbelievers don't know that they're, they're fighting against the fountain of all goodness and love. They don't know it. They just know they're being told what to do and therefore they resist it because all they've, all they've ever known is to trust themselves. This world's a cruel place. And especially if you grow up in, with people who don't love you and just use you all the time, it's very easy to, to hate any expression of authority. Even when it's the authority of the, of, the, of the most glorious, loving, kind God of the universe. And again, I say this so that you would have perspective. When people persecute you, when they say all kinds of evil against you, don't be shocked. But understand their mindset. They, they don't know the God that they're rejecting, and that's why they hate Him so much. And they hate what you're saying. And we know this because we were once there ourselves. If we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
And so despite facing persecution every time that he would preach, Paul just kept on going. In fact, listen to his perspective on this from 2 Corinthians 4. Actually, I'd encourage you to turn there. See why Paul does what he does despite persecution. Why does he leave one town and go into the next town and keep doing the same thing, though it results in just more beatings and more imprisonment? Well, he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, notice this, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifest in our body. Just as Christ laid down his life for Paul, Paul says, I'm going to lay my life down for other people who are still blind to the goodness of God. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Brothers and sisters, that's why we keep preaching. That's why we're okay with persecution. It's because that's what shows that we really believe. So it shows the real love of Christ. And the missionary's devotion of preaching, despite regular persecution, was shared by Romanian pastors who were imprisoned under communism. Richard Vermbram wrote about this pattern of preaching, progress, and persecution in his book, Tortured for Christ. He talks about the prison situation. He says it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught preaching received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothes and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? He continued his gospel message. I've seen beautiful things, wrote Fernbrand. And this is the same pattern we see in Paul's ministry. Goes in one city, gets beaten, picks himself up, goes in another city, preaches, gets beaten, picks himself up and keeps going on. Wow, when the opposition here against the church got bad enough in Berea, the church concluded, you know, it's best, Paul, if you depart. But they requested that, that Silas and Timothy stay behind to continue to teach them and establish them in the faith. But it's, it's important for us to recognize Paul wasn't fleeing because he was scared. He wasn't fleeing at all. Paul made the choice to advance. He was just going to take the message to other people. The Berean Jews that had become saved, those Gentiles that had become saved, they could continue to teach. Paul and Silas would strengthen them, but he himself would go next to Athens. 
preach the gospel to those unbelievers. He was still in the fight. He's just redirecting his efforts to a new location yet again. Now, I think it's remarkable that such a great church like Berea never had a letter written to it that we have record of. We have a record to the Macedonian church of Philippi, the Thessalonica, but nothing more is said of Berea. And I wonder if that has to do with the fact that Paul never had to write a letter to correct them. Because they were diligent. They were teachable. They, 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 they eagerly received the word of God. They were more noble-minded. They were grounded in the word, and because of that, Paul didn't have to correct them. Because they could just be get led by the word, which was, again, how Christ leads his church. And this pattern, I think, is helpful for us to recognize. When, when we think rightly, it's the right thinking that leads to, leads to right affections, that leads to right actions. Again, we're called to love God with every aspect of our being, with all of our mind, with all of our heart, and with all of our strength. Our mind, our affections, and our will. But there's a pattern that follows. It begins with the word, with the mind. Rightly understanding what God's word said. When we rightly understand it, that helps us to to know what we should love. It it directs our affections. When our affections are compelled, that's what leads us to do the right thing. By nature, we do what we feel like. And so when our affections are in line with God's word... We do what our affections lead us to do, which is right action. But if we start that pattern in action or in affection, we're inevitably going to need correction. And so the process matters. When doing or feelings come first, problems emerge. We become hypocrites. Or we just, we're just acting, but our hearts don't line up with what we believe, or we're being led by our emotions rather than truth. That's why it's important that, again, we start with a diligent study of the Word of God, which will that's what's going to affect our feelings, and that's what's going to then help us to lead a life that honors God. Which is why we make such a big emphasis of be in the Word. Receive the Word. Hear as much preaching as you possibly can that's good preaching. Study the Word of God on your own memorize it, go to Bible studies, discuss it, because that's where change starts. And when we do that, we could be a church just like Berea, that will be strong despite whatever persecution might come against us, and we would continue to, to, to produce rich, beautiful fruit within our lives. Let's pray. God, that's exactly what we want to be. We want to be faithful believers who, who, who are so strong in the faith and so loving in light of the grace that you've showed upon us that we, we accept persecution because we are so desperate to see other people believe the faith, to come to a knowledge of the truth, to receive the mercy and forgiveness that we too have received. Lord, that they might have their eyes opened to know the peace and the security and the confidence of being children of you. And so we pray that you would continue to be at work within us, individually as a church, 
to make us to be a church like the Bereans. We pray these things in Christ's name.